Hey, good morning, Crossroads. First, just want to say thanks to Will and the team for a great season of worship. You know, just our hearts being lifted up. It's kind of like, this is like an oasis in this world, isn't it, to come here? And I was just thinking, you know, after that wonderful stretch of worship, we could just pronounce the benediction and go home fully blessed, right? <laughs> Don't count on that, though. We got a little bit more to go here. And uh, thanks, Rod, for your introduction. I was just thinking this morning, it was a long time ago, that we had lunch in Chicago and you asked me for Libby's hand. And little did I know at that time that he'd be my pastor. You know, like, how weird is that? And he is a good pastor. and We are delighted to sit under his ministry and to be a part of this church. You know, you always, you always pray that your kids marry well, right? In fact, we told our kids, marry for money. You can learn to love. <laughs> and seriously, I, I know that we all don't have this story, but, you know, Rod is a gift to our family. And actually, Rod, you're an answer to our prayers that we, Libby would marry well. So, well... I don't have to come all the way from Cornerstone University to tell you that we live in despairing times. Despair. Despair is that demon that haunts our souls when we live in dire circumstances and can do nothing about it. And our world has imploded. And we feel that unwelcome resident of despair in our hearts, that somehow we can do nothing about it. So Rod released me to do something a little different. And I thought, in the midst of a despairing world, like maybe could we on this Sunday morning dig into scripture and find a treasure of hope? Would that be possible? And I said, I think it is possible. So let's do a journey. Let's go to the book. That's the book. And see if we can't rescue hope for our souls because that's God's ultimate gift to our lives. All right, our passage this morning is Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 9 through 13. So open your Bibles. This is Crossroads Bible Church, or your devices, or whatever, and if you come here often, you know that in honor to God's Word, we stand when we read God's Word, so let's stand. Colossians 1, verse 9, this is the Spirit of God speaking to the church at Colossae through the letter of Paul. And thankfully, over 2,000 years, the Spirit of God speaking to our hearts through that same letter as well. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, Paul writes, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience 
with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For, this is my, one of my favorite Bible verses of all times. For, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That sounds so Tolkien, doesn't it? Like, start the music. Da, 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 da. The domain, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and literally uprooted and transplanted us into the kingdom of his dear son. And the church said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So there is something dramatically different about our world. Our sense of wellness has been shattered by a little invisible bug that came from across the seas and turned our world upside, turned our lives upside down. And actually we wonder, will it ever, will it ever be the same again? I don't know about you, but my soul has been deeply torn with the racial realities that have come to play in the last month, the deep injustices that have been revealed. It is, it's like a rock at the bottom of my heart. And I wonder, how will we ever heal this wound? Given the uh, massive momentum of secularism, those of us who are followers of Christ, we realize that we become increasingly marginalized in a world where the social elites actually wake up church. Social elites really think that this world would be better off without people like us because we're the resistance force. We hold the progress, progress back and uh, we are known as the bigoted, unwelcome subculture of our country. Morally, we live in a world where everybody does what is right in their own sight. So, whether it's morally or politically, and do you grieve over the political scene? I mean, suddenly we're not governing for the people anymore, are we? We're governing by revenge and character assassination and a big game of who will win in Washington, D.C. So the list is long. And for some of us this morning, it's not what's happening on the outside. It's the despair in our hearts for what's happening to us personally. You, you write the story. Broken relationships, shattered dreams, and you're stuck and you can do nothing about it. So no wonder that despair becomes the operational word when we're really frank and honest about all that's going on in our world. I remember speaking uh, to a group in Florida a few years ago on the fact that our world's dramatically changed. We live in an increasingly hostile culture, and how do Christians navigate successfully, winsomely with the power of God in a world like this? And I happened to say, I said, I don't think we're going to get America back. Now, normally, when I'm preaching about this time in the service, most of you are drifting away. Like, I realize that's what normally happens. But not so this time. A man literally in the front row actually came half out of his chair when I said that. And he said, oh, no, what will we do? 
And the despair was literally like palatable. This week I was talking to a very dear widow friend of mine. And she said to me, Joe, what has happened to our world? I mean, despair was all over her eyes. She said, I can't, I'm so fearful for what my, the world my grandkids are going to grow up in. Well, it may come as some comfort that uh, we're not the only ones in this world. Uh, I've heard this, and I, I tried to do a little research. I can't dig it out. I'm going to say it anyway, because it may likely be true. That actually there are more martyrs for Jesus Christ in our world today globally than there are in all the centuries of the church to this day. We have a student coming to Cornerstone. His name is Enoch. comes from China. He'll be a freshman this year. I had a delightful chat with him, but he unfolded his story to me that his father has been absentee from the home for many years because as a Chinese pastor, he has been imprisoned for Jesus Christ. Or think of children in Africa growing up in Christians' homes whose parents have literally been murdered in front of them. It's the real stories because of their stand for Christ and then they're taken away in sex trafficking. We're not alone in this. Or think of the early church. Dare I recite for you the history of them succeeding in a hostile environment. And it is to these people who were covered with pitch, tied to lampstones, lampstands in Rome, lit on fire. It's to these people who were thrown to lions and to entertain the crowds. It was these people who, who lost their jobs because they refused to worship the idol of the guild in which they work. It is to these people that Paul writes our text. And he gives them five upbeat attitudes to embrace. Number one, walk worthy in full pleasing to the Lord, the text says. Strengthened with all power. It is to these people that he says, live out with endurance and patience, persist with joy and thanksgiving. Five upbeat attitudes. And I just have to tell you, when I read this in the context of those early Christians who were reading this in their difficult, hostile environment, when I read that, I'm going like, this is, ah. Uh, I mean, this seems so counterintuitive to their life situation. I mean, how ridiculous that Paul would, would say to them, walk worthy, when they accepted Christ, and their father lost their job, and their uncle got thrown to the lions. I'm going to walk worthy? That's like bait and switch. Why, why do you call me to walk worthy to a Lord like that? Or to persist. When I wake up every morning knowing it's game over, that I'm in the loser club, or to be strengthened with all power when I walk through the streets and see the intimidating images of Roman soldiers with their swords and shields. And or you ask me to have joy in a world like this? Or thankfulness? It seems to me like, like God's leading us to Wawa land. <laughs> if you feel like that, keep reading. Anytime the Bible doesn't make sense to you, keep reading. There's something more in this text. 
How can you have those upbeat attitudes? How can you have that kind of hope? This is why. For God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and put you into the kingdom of his dear son. By the way, if I can just parenthetically, I'm going to wait, not waste, but I'm going to use up a little time here. I just said something on the side here that I love. You notice it says that God has done us, put you in the kingdom of his dear son. When I think of the Trinity, I usually think of a theological structure of the Father has the eternal plan, the, the Son obeys the Father and goes to the cross, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Son, they have this organizational setup. And it always seems kind of wooden to me until I read this text. You know, the Father looks at the Son and he says, He is my what? Dear Son. It's my beloved son, but that within this wonderful trinity, there is the joy of mutual love. There's the joy of unity. It's, it's, they, they're friends. They love each other. They work together. And then Christ prays in John 17, similar to what Rod just said, that were that the, my followers would be one as we are one. Different gifts, different assignments, but you're dear to me. We're dear to one another. That's the beautiful, powerful testimony of the church. Into the kingdom of his dear son. Close parentheses. So let's talk about kingdom a little bit because here's the treasure of hope for us. What does it mean to be in the kingdom of his dear son? Well, first of all, you need to know that in this world there are only two kingdoms. All right? The domain of darkness... And, I can't carry this ball by myself this morning. Come on, you've got to help me a little bit. The domain of darkness and the kingdom of his dear son, right? So there's the kingdom of Satan and there's the kingdom of Christ. There are only two kingdoms. That's it. Two places to land. Two places of identity. That's it. And these two kingdoms have two cultures. And I think it's very important for us to understand the dramatic difference in these cultures. So give me a few minutes to talk about the difference in the cultures of this kingdom. The first, uh, first uh, assignment or description of the kingdom of Satan is that it is a kingdom of darkness. I don't know about you, but when you're in the dark, <laughs> it's disorienting, right? It's dangerous. It's like unknown, it's spooky, it's like, it's like your spouse changes the furniture in your bedroom and you get up in the middle of the night and walk into the wall because it's dark, kingdom of darkness. And then Jesus comes in John chapter 8 and makes this amazing announcement. He walks into this domain of darkness and he says, I am the light of the world. The kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of light. The lights are on. We have understanding. We can see. The danger is gone. The disorientation is, is dissolved. That's the kingdom of his dear son. Another contrast in the cultures is that in John, I think it's, uh, actually I want to check this to be sure here so I don't lead you astray. The last thing I want to do is lead you astray. Um, in John chapter 8, Jesus says of Satan, that he is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. The kingdom of Satan is a kingdom of deceit and a kingdom of death. 
Think of the deceit he sows in your heart and your mind about money, about sex, about, about success, about enemies, about... And I'm reminded of that text that so powerfully says there is a way that seems right to you, this deceitful way. It seems so good. But the end there are over the ways of death. And a murderer from the beginning, he loves death. The slaughter of unborn children globally, it's a joyous thing for Satan. You have a party in hell. Death is his mantra. That's the kingdom of Satan. And then Jesus comes in John chapter 14 and makes this bold statement. He said, I am the way, the, not deceit. So there's stability. This is true. What he gives me is, is right. I am the way, the truth, and the Life, not death, that this is the kingdom of Christ. It's not only a kingdom of light, it's a kingdom of truth, and it's a kingdom of life. The contrast in Romans chapter 14, uh, God says, uh, the kingdom of God is not food and drink, which is a little annoying, actually. <laughs> the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but it is righteousness. Everything in the kingdom of God is right. It's right. It's joy, righteousness, joy, and peace. That's the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Satan is unrighteousness, all the wrongs, all the injustices that he just cheers on and finds great joy in. The, the conflict instead of peace and the sorrow that comes instead of joy. Such different cultures. The kingdom of Satan is chaos. Read through scripture. Every time he enters the scene, chaos erupts. He loves chaos. The kingdom of Christ is shalom, order, peace. I was reading Ephesians 1 a couple years ago. The thing I love about the Bible, I've been reading it for a lot of years. As you can tell, I've been around for a lot of years. I've been reading it for a lot of years. The thing that I like is you read something you've read a dozen times, and all of a sudden there's something new there. And I never saw this before. And Ephesians chapter 1 says, when Jesus comes, he will make all things one. Harmony instead of chaos. I don't know if you've ever paid a high price to get a good seat at a symphony. And you walk in, sit down, and all the musicians come out. And then they all start warming their instruments up, playing little scales and in their own keys. And it's like, ah, cacophony, like, I didn't pay for this. And then, and then the conductor comes out, and everybody gets quiet. And he lifts his wand, and it's beautiful harmony. That's the kingdom of Christ. That's what Christ will bring and make all things beautifully one. Satan is a kingdom of brokenness. In the fall, we all fell and we all became broken. Christ came with a healing ministry. 
You, you, you marvel at the, at the healing of Christ. You think, wow, he must be God. Well, that's part of it. He proved he was God by healing the sick and the lame, making the dead to live, etc. But what it really was, he was showing you what his kingdom is like, that brokenness is done and healing has come. It's a sneak preview of the really big show to come, that in Christ's kingdom, the brokenness is over. Kingdom of Satan is anarchy. People living whatever the way they want to live, fighting for their own rights. The kingdom of Christ is constitutional, has stability. Think Sermon on the Mount. It's the Constitution. When we live into that, we live with stability and peace and joy. You say, I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It seems so upside down. Like, I don't want to turn the other cheek. I don't want to give away another coat. Like, that seems so upside down. Why is Jesus so upside down, always saying things like, in order to live, you have to die. In order to, you know, in order to gain, you've got to give it all away. Like, it's so upside down. So I just want you to know, Jesus is not upside down. You are upside down. That's why it feels upside down to you. And part of redemption is turning you right side up and putting you into the kingdom of his son. The kingdom of Satan is temporary. Revelation 20, the day is coming when all of that will be cast into the lake of fire forever, over the end. The kingdom of Christ is eternal. The kingdom of Satan is defeated at the cross and the resurrection. The kingdom of his dear son is victorious. Did you ever read through the book of Revelation? How many of you know exactly what Revelation is about. Wow, that's bold, two of you. Like. So I'll tell you the summary of Revelation. Jesus wins. That's the summary of Revelation. Jesus wins. His kingdom is victorious. So having said all, seeing that the, the, there are only two kingdoms and the cultures of the kingdoms are like, in dramatic contrast, so I've said all of that, here's a Sunday morning question. Which kingdom would you like to belong to? I mean, it's like a, a non-question, right? Here's the bad Sunday morning news. You're stuck in the domain of Satan. You're stuck. You were born into his kingdom. You can't be good enough. You can't be clever enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be rich enough. You can't do anything to get out of the kingdom of Satan. That's despair, big time. You need a champion. You need someone to help you. remember in junior high school, long before I knew anything about bullying, I don't even know if anybody knew anything, a name for it, bullying, there was a kid in my class by the name of Ronnie Barlotta. I, I, this is all like seared into my memory bank. And he decided he was going to prove his manhood on me. And every time I'd walk by him in the hall, he'd shove me into the lockers. He'd tell me, if I ever get a hold of you, 
you know, after school, I'm going to beat the tar out of you. I lived in mortal fear of him. I kept, I, and I couldn't do anything about it. I kept asking mutual friends. There was a, and I think actually most of my insecurities today, which are many, date right back to that experience. I do think, if I remember, he's a kind of skinny little kid. I'd kind of like to see him today. <laughs> which, by the way, was a thought from the dark side. <laughs> but I was stuck. And I couldn't do anything about it. And it was despairing for me. I was haunted by it. You're stuck. You can't do anything about it. You need somebody to help you. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's Narnia tales. Uh, when he talks about Narnia... And uh, the wicked witch who ruled it, and under the wicked witch's leadership, the landscape. Uh, this is a great quote from Lewis. It was always winter and never Christmas. Until Aslan, the Jesus figure, the powerful Jesus figure, marches onto the scene. And Aslan arrives, and all is well. And he snatches people from the wicked witch makes them his own. And that's what Jesus does for us. He is our champion. And in the end, you need to know because of that, we win. It's the central story of Scripture. Front pages of the Bible, Genesis 3. God says, the seed of woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Right at the beginning. And then we read that he'll be of the seed of Abraham. He, you know, God keeps dropping all these hints about Aslan coming in to help us. And then he's going to be a king like the King David. And then he's going to be born in Bethlehem according to the prophet and all the prophets. And then, and then the word to Joseph and Mary. He will save his people from their sins, rescue them. And then he comes and he goes to the cross to be our champion and then he's risen from the grave to seal the deal. Easter is the, is the pinnacle point of redemptive history. He sealed the deal. He proved the point. You can trust in him. You can believe in him because he rose from the dead. You know, you, can, you need to know that when Christ was crucified, Satan thought he had won the big victory. Satan's tracking all the promises. Satan's tracking. He realizes that this is his major foe. This is the seed of woman. And he puts him on the cross and sticks him in a grave and rolls the stone. And he's dead. Hell had a three-day party. You can count on it. They won. I can just see Satan sitting on the throne like Jabba the Hutt. Like, whoa, we won. Like, I don't want this. He's probably more fierce than that, actually. And on the third day, some big shot demon comes. Hey, dude, hey, we got a problem. We have a big problem. He is alive. He is alive. James Martin, two years ago, on the day before Easter Sunday, writes this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Listen to it, to what he says. He says, what difference does Easter make in the life of a Christian? The message of Easter is all at once, easy to understand, radical, subversive, and life-changing. Easter means that nothing is impossible with God. 
Moreover, that life triumphs over death, that love triumphs over hatred, and hope triumphs over despair. And now read the text. Can you walk worthy of a Lord who has delivered you like this? Can you live to please him in the midst of all this world? Can you persist? <laughs> I mean, we've read, the, we've read the last chapter, right? We can persist. We know where this is turning out. Can you have strength in the power of his resurrection? Of course, I mean, this isn't Paul leading them into Wawa land. We are kingdom people. We're on the victory side, and we can have the strength of resurrection in spite of all the intimidating forces in our world. And can you have joy? Dallas Willard says, joy, biblical joy, is a deep down sense of all rightness in your heart. I love that. The kingdom gives you joy. And thanksgiving. Can you be thankful in the midst of a world like this? I'll tell you this. If God doesn't do anything else for you, then come along and snatch you out of the domain of darkness and put you into the kingdom of his dear son. You've got something to be thankful for for the rest of your life if nothing else good happens to you. So, so that's the text. That we will be people who have strength and persistence and joy and thanksgiving because we are people of the kingdom of his dear son. So, um, it, it reminds me that hope is not a college in Holland. It reminds me that hope is what we have in Jesus. That's a great place for an amen, by the way. <laughs> and it reminds me of parenting. You know, for those of us who've been parents, it, it's an interesting occupation, isn't it? And I realize how close you get to child abuse at times, <laughs> if you're a parent. And... And periodically, when Marty and I got into that kind of muck of parenting, uh, we had this thing we always said to each other. Just looked at each other and said, this too shall pass. And when this wicked world gets you down, you need a friend who looks you in the eyes and says, you're a kingdom person, this too shall pass. I think that life is a lot like a feature-length film. If you freeze frame it in the moment, you will have despair. Count on it. Let it roll. God is the executive producer. He knows the end of the film. Let the film roll. Do not freeze frame it in the moment because he is in control. And in the end, he is king of kings and lord of lords. Periodically, we'd have kids who came home and uh, all of a sudden started using a word we don't use in our family. And I'd say, where'd you hear that word? And they'd say, well, my friend uses it all the time. And we'd just look at them and say, well, fine, but you need to know something. We don't use that word in our family. We don't use the word despair in our family. It is not in the kingdom vocabulary. It's not. Marty and I had the uh, privilege 
two or three Christmases ago. We, we were in London, and the, the Royal Albert Hall is an ancient venue in London. Seats about 5,000 people. It's kind of like in this egg-shaped venue. And we went to hear Handel's Messiah. Now, I realize that some of you under 18 probably have never heard of Handel's Messiah. But it's a great musical piece from the 1700s that is full front end of rejoicing in Jesus Christ. It's got the Christmas story. It's got the Easter story. And here was the nice, wonderful thing about it. It was sung, brace yourself, by a 500-voice choir with the London Symphony playing. And all the way through, they rejoiced. And then it came to the Hallelujah Chorus, which many of you know about. And historically, in honor to Christ, when the Hallelujah Chorus is sung, people stand up. And we all still, 5,000 of us, right in the midst of pagan London, probably most of the people were not kingdom people. We all stood up. And they started singing. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever, hallelujah. I had tears in my eyes. I well, that's my king. It's my king. He shall reign forever and ever. All hail King Jesus. All hail Emmanuel, King of kings, Lord of lords, and bright morning star. And when Jesus was with us, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. So be grumpy and despairing. <laughs> you know better, don't you? He said, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen.